news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello, podcast listeners. Carly here. Author Accelerator is on a mission to change the way people learn to write books. Instead of writers struggling to figure things out on their own, Author Accelerator trains book coaches to give writers the real accountability, editorial feedback, and emotional support needed to write books worth reading. They offer a writer matchmaking service to pair writers with the best book coach for their project. They also offer a variety of events for writers ranging from free workshops to high-ticket incubators aimed at getting your polished manuscript or book proposal in front of the eyes of the industry's top agents. And I am one of those agents. Whether you're ready to hire a book coach or you're thinking of becoming one yourself, you can learn more at AuthorAccelerator.com. That's AuthorAccelerator.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks. We're dashing straight in today. We've got two awesome authors who are joining us, Hannah and Beth. Now, Hannah previously submitted her work to the show, a different novel, and we critiqued it without her being on the show. And today, Hannah was chosen to join us for a new novel. So for those of you who have queried us with one work, if you've moved on to something else, please feel free to query us with the new project. So Hannah, welcome to the show. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. So will you kick us off by reading us your query letter? Yes. Dear Cece, since you're on the hunt for a dual POV story with morally ambiguous female main characters with unsavory emotions who lie and steal, I'd like to share Between Lies and Revenge. This 82,000 word upmarket fiction with elements of suspense will sit nicely between Lucky by Marissa Stapley and Pretty Things by Janelle Brown. Everyone has a line they won't cross, their own version of good and bad. At a certain point, they'll be challenged to cross the line. Some leap across and don't look back. Olivia's sick of being the perfect friend, wife, and woman. She believed it would pay off. Instead, it works against her. Her body won't respond to fertility treatment. Her husband refuses to pay for IVF. Her friends are too obsessed with their MLM social circles to help. When she meets Elle, she can tell she's different from everyone else. But when she realizes Elle is stealing her jewelry, replacing them with perfect replicas, she crosses her moral line. No longer passively accepting no for an answer, Olivia blackmails Elle into stealing jewelry from her rich friends in the same manner Elle stole from her. Elle's secretly thrilled to go along with Olivia's scandalous business plan. Elle has been bored for years, living life as a normal housewife instead of following her true instinct, the con. This is the most fun she's had in years, forging, selling the originals for profit, and bonding with Olivia. But when Elle comes clean about Olivia's jewelry being her lost inheritance, an unexpected link is revealed that threatens to disband Elle and Olivia's scam and friendship. They must stop lying to one another and devise a final con to eliminate the threat before their criminal footprint is discovered and their futures lost. I reside in Washington State with my husband and three young children. I'm a member of the WFWA and have been strengthening my writing through online education, craft groups, and writing conferences. Before finding my writing buddies, I found community in the direct sales world, which has inspired the story of manipulation and fraud. Thank you, Hannah Sharp. Awesome, Hannah. Thanks so much for that. Right, Cece, tell us what you think. First of all, Hannah, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. It's such a treat to have you here. Well, I guess for a first time, but to read your work on the show for a second time. Um, I just froze when I said the word treat because I'm so used to not being able to say it because of my dog. This is really pathetic. This My life is so pathetic. Okay. I also want to give a shout out to Lucky, Marissa's novel, because it's an amazing novel. And if you haven't read it already, please do. First line of the, I guess, the plot stuff, which starts with everyone has a line they won't cross. I don't know if you remember, but during the retreat, we talked about like putting the hook in your book. And I was like, there's the hook and there's the heart. I think this is closer to the heart than the hook. It's a great line. I love it. I just don't think you need it since it's just, it's more like about a general theme, like everybody having a line they won't cross and being challenged to cross and sometimes leaping and not looking back. So powerful things, but I don't think you, don't think you need it in the query and definitely not at the very top. If we could put the hook up top, that would be better. And I'll get to that as soon as we dive into the plot paragraphs a little bit more. I love the premise here. I love the premise. I love the setup. I love the two like friendship stories and like clearly they both have agendas going on. And I just, I feel like I want to flesh that out a little bit more. So for example, the paragraph that starts with Olivia's arc. It's not that it's bad information because it is relevant to the story. The fact that she's sick of being the perfect friend, wife and and woman, believing it would pay off. Instead, it works against her. But what we can do is we can compress all that into finding the friendship already. So for example, you could start it with, again, I did not, I did not do what Carly did on that episode and rewrite this, but I'm trying to do it in my head right now. But it could be something like when Olivia meets Elle, 
she thinks she's finally found a true friend, someone who will listen to her troubles. And then we can figure out what the troubles are. It's important to make sure that Elle is totally different from Olivia, which you've done. I would just like to know how, like maybe she's super outspoken, super confrontational, and Olivia isn't. And then when she crosses the moral line, am I correct in assuming that she is crossing this line because she needs the money for the fertility treatments? I think so, because you've mentioned that her husband won't pay for it. So I think you've done a good job of establishing why she's crossing that moral line. So, so great job there. And then when it comes to framing it as passively accepting it as no, that's the part that I don't quite get because I don't understand like how she was how she was being passive and accepting no for an answer. I mean, I guess other than her husband refusing to pay for the treatment, but I think we can make this a bit more active, you know? Like, it could be something like she realized she could turn this to her advantage. You know, she realized that she was not going to be nice, I don't know, something like that. And then we can already have the friendship being blossoming, being established in Olivia's paragraph, since we'll, we'll kick off with that or we'll weave that in somewhere. So when we get Elle's paragraph, what I want to know is, what is Elle's secret agenda? Because if... Olivia's jewelry is Elle's lost inheritance, then then Elle must have known, right, about Olivia? Or she figured it out at some point? Like, I just, I need more clarity on that. That's the part that's that's tripping me up. I'm not saying we need to put it in the query letter, but it just needs to be clear, like, what her endgame is. I guess, have you read, I think it's called The Last Mrs. Parish. There's a situation where it's dual POV, and you first get the wife's point of view, and then you get, like, this friend who just made her way into her social circle and is clearly trying to end this person's marriage. And we get the two points of view. And for the first half of the book, we're convinced that the wife is just being a victim. But then, because we're getting the new friend's point of view first. And then when we get the wife's point of view, we realize that actually, no, the wife was onto her and had a plan of her own. So that's what I think I want to understand a little bit more, like who's playing who, what the agenda is, like what the end game is, especially because before their criminal footprint is discovered and their futures lost, not enough specificity to make it a real threat. Like I need a clearer antagonist Who's after them? Do they have to come together before XYZ? Is there ticking time tension? I need to know all these very specific antagonistic forces so that I can feel a lot of fear. Because right now it feels like, other than this vague line, the only thing that's really at stake is their friendship. And don't get me wrong, their friendship is lovely, but like that, it's just not enough, right, to get us super, super invested. I will say, though, that knowing a little bit more about your story, because we have discussed this before, you and me, the query letter is not as wonderful as the pages, which is kind of what you want. Like you do want a great query letter, but you want your pages to be even stronger. And they're both great, but the pages are even better. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly, before we go to Hannah, was there anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah. So my main thing that I always talk about with multi-POV is... The hook should always include what brings these stories together, not what sets them apart. So I think figuring out or somehow alluding to whether Elle knew Olivia beforehand and kind of the hook should really encompass how the story comes together and less so like what sets these two apart. So I would focus on that as the hook. I think that that's really my main note, but I I agree with Cece about everything. Awesome. Thank you. All right, Hannah, now we're opening it up to you to give responses to Cece or to ask questions before we discuss your opening pages. Okay, so that was excellent. I completely tore apart my query. I had it reversed from the perspective opening, like with the perspective of Elle and how she moves into the story. And I thought I would try something else 
and get your feedback because I wasn't sure if the other one was working. And I feel like now I kind of have my answer on which one might be working. But when writing a dual POV, I feel like this is a really good example of how the query can be very different depending on which character you start with. So that was very helpful. I don't have any, I don't have any questions about that. I feel like that was very clear. It gave me exactly what I needed to know. Can you answer Cece's question in terms of the, what was the link that you weren't sure about? Oh, the jewels, how one is the inheritance. So is there a way to sort of answer that for Cece without giving spoilers so that she can help you in terms of how to better word that? In the open pages. Olivia and Elle don't know each other. The inheritance was lost when Elle was younger and she sees it on Olivia and so she seeks out a friendship. Would answering what lost means be a huge spoiler? Like lost like at sea, like someone stole it, she has no idea, like burglary situation or or would that be a spoiler? Because if so, do not tell me and I will take my headphones off. No, in my other query... I mentioned that she loses her family inheritance with her brother's death. He basically disappears with them. And that is where, that's where it goes. Okay. Okay. My wheels are are spinning. Let's go to your pages. But but just before that, what Hannah just said answers Carly's question because she sees the jewels on her and that's what brings them together, right? Mm -hmm. So Carly, would you want that in, in the query so that you could understand how they're brought together better? I think... I I have this huge urge, like Cece does, to just rewrite this query letter for you because I can see the potential and my wheels are spinning because I pitch multi-POV to editors it, all the Carly. time. <laughs> Do it, I'm I'm very used to pitching multi-POV as an agent. So I'm always thinking of, like, what is it that brings these two together? So I might just need to, like, to think about it a little bit. But to me, what brings them together, it would be like, so I'm totally just you know, rambling here. But I think it would be something like two odd friends, you know, come together for the con of their life, not knowing that they, you know, are intertwined unknowingly through their past, come along on a journey to figure out, you know, who needs what and why, like, you know, all. but you know what I mean? Like, that's what I mean about like bringing them together. I want to know, I want like a movie trailer hook is what I want for, for multi POV hook. You know what I mean? Like, I want to know, like, this Ocean's Eleven thing you got going on, right? Tell me why these two have to be together to do this con to save their lives. Like, that's what I want to know. It's like this is her job. Look at how good she is at this. It's like she does this for a living. (laughs) Right. Excellent, Carly. Thank you. Right. Hannah, will you give our listeners a bit of an understanding as to what's in the opening pages before CC discusses them? Yeah. So the story opens with a very brief letter, and we don't know who the letter is between but it is to somebody who's dead. And then it moves right in to Elle's perspective. Elle is the first of the two main characters. She is meeting a psychiatrist for the first time, and she's lying to her. She's pretending that she's worried that her husband is cheating on her, but that is not the truth. And she's just basically playing with the therapist's mind. When she leaves the appointment, she sees a woman she doesn't know in the lobby, and she's wearing a familiar piece of jewelry to her. Then she proceeds to head outside and make statements about the town. She's not a fan, but pets a dog. And that's her one little redeeming factor that she likes animals. And then we move into Olivia's perspective. And Olivia is 
seeing the therapist. She's the woman, the Alcross in the waiting room. And she's excited because she thinks that she's pregnant. And her therapist warns her to be very cautious because she's been trying for a long time and has never been successful. And as their conversation unravels, so does Olivia. And she realizes she's starting her period and goes off to the bathroom and cries. Wonderful. Thanks, Hannah. Okay, Cece, what was your take on those opening pages? First of all, I did not realize that it was Al's first time at the psychiatrist. I must have missed the reference to that. So thank you for telling me. Okay. I don't think we should start with the Dear Travis thing. I think either remove it entirely or write something in that letter that's super compelling. It's just very placid, like a lake, no ripples, no waves, no turmoil. I know it's short, so great job. If you're going to keep it, this is the length to keep it, but it's not... Like, I know you love it, so just add something, like, juicy to it. It's a curiosity seed, like we learned about at the book club meeting. Or remove it. Okay, so when it comes to Elle's chapter, I don't know if you'll remember this, but when we had our first meeting of the Books with Hooks book club and I dissected the ballerinas, when we were talking about chapter one, like, going essentially paragraph by paragraph, I kept going like this on camera, which is I'm using my my fingers to make an up and down motion, almost like a wave or like, I don't know what else would look like this, just very strange. It's really important in a first chapter to have ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs, and surprise us, to keep surprising us. I am surprised by, at the very beginning, because this is a woman who is lying to her therapist, because she's there at her husband's request. So first question, is the therapist reporting back to the husband? Like, is this an unethical therapist? At least in her in her opinion, in her conception, she might be wrong or right about that. If so, I think we need to make that super clear because that's a lot of tension, right? Like essentially like talking to a therapist, it's supposed to be a super safe space. So I would 100% make that very, very clear. If it's just paranoia in her head, then we don't need to make it very clear because it's just character development. But then we need to add something else to, to make the up, down, up, down, up, down happen. I had ideas about that, actually. So we'll go on a little brainstorming session. I don't think, because in Olivia's chapter, we, well, all we get for the Olivia's pages is that she thinks she's pregnant, but she's not. And it's very heartbreaking when at the end we realize that she's not. Like, I totally felt for her, but I d- it didn't give me the up, down, up, down, up, down. So what if... Oh, and the second thing, I don't think we need both of them to go into the therapist's office and to talk to the therapist. It's just the mirroring is a bit too much, especially since, correct me if I'm wrong, the therapist isn't an important character. The therapist is just there as a device, just the thread that connects them. What if in the middle of Elle's session, Olivia is actually interrupting? Like, think about it this way. Olivia has just found out that she's pregnant, or at least is convinced that she's pregnant. She can't tell anyone because her friends are all like selfish jerks who won't listen to her. She can't tell her husband because he's like also a jerk. He has a lot of jerks in her life. She can't tell, I don't know, her mom or whatever else. So the only person who's her safe space is her therapist. So she runs to the therapist's office and interrupts the session or tries to interrupt the session. I just think that if in the middle of Elle's session we had an interruption like that, it would give Elle's arc another up, down, up, down, up, down. It would allow her to see the bracelet while she was still in front of the therapist, which would mean that for like half a second her mask would fall, therefore creating even more tension in terms of will the therapist notice? Probably not because it's just looking at a bracelet, but she'll still feel insecure. And it'll mean that Olivia's session won't be as long because what the therapist can do is just be like, hey, boundaries, we talked about this. You can't barge in. I know that you're doing this. It's coming from a place of 
like the therapist would be compassionate, right? Like probably a place with anxiety and, and I appreciate, you know, your vulnerability, but you can't do this. Like, so that's an idea I had. If you don't like that idea, which is obviously totally fine because it's your book. One thing I think would make a big difference in Olivia's chapter when Olivia's talking to the therapist because all we get is her pregnancy, which again, I feel like a jerk saying because it's a huge, huge deal in someone's life. But for a book, not enough up-downs. So I thought that maybe we could learn what... So right now we're learning what she's fixating on. And in therapy, there's two major things that make it interesting for an observer. What the client is fixating on and what the client is avoiding. So what the therapist does is talk to her about the fixation. Great. But what if the therapist was like, let's not talk about that right now. How about we talk about insert thing here that Olivia is avoiding? And that would give us a window into the other part of her life beyond the pregnancy and the stuff she's avoiding. And perhaps that might add up, down tension. I'm also not going to, because we don't have time, I'm not going to go through all the things that are super great here. You'll get my notes and you'll see it. But I just want to say that I highlighted so many great lines. The writing is so crisp, so clear. There wasn't a single clunky sentence. Like, it was just absolutely great. The First of all, I thought the character was me, the horrible L character, because she was petting the bulldog and saying, hi, baby, in the pitch that's too high. But then she asks for permission to pet the bulldog, which I never would. I would just pet the bulldog. So she's not me. Oh, and I wanted to, to just very quickly say the paragraph that starts with, I do miss him, his extraordinary body pressed against mine and goes all the way out till slightly out of place. I, I would like use that paragraph in a class I was teaching. It had everything. It had echo, sharp, specific, curiosity seeds, all in three lines. So brava, that was absolutely excellent. And I will stop rambling now. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly, was there anything you wanted to add to that before we go back to Hannah? No. Okay. All right, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I really do. I really like those ideas. I think that they could work. I feel like I had a question, but now I think it's left me. (laughs) Did you have a question that I needed to answer this time around? I also get so excited and talk so much that I don't even know if I had a question buried in there. I don't think so. I was scribbling too quickly. (laughs) Oh, the letter. I was going to ask about the letters. I have a letter above each chapter. So I was wondering if you think that I would still need one at the beginning of this first chapter or if I should just move it down to the next chapter and then move from there. Are they all super short like this one? No, not all super short. They're all less than a page. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's short. I mean, not to be repetitive, but yeah, either change it, like change, like for example, this this L person is obviously L, right? Like talking to her brother who died, who took jewelry. So just write something like, "I found her. I finally found her. You're not gonna get away with it. Found who? Found what? Get away with what? Something like that would do it, because it would be like again super short, like you're doing it, which is the exact right way to go. But it would be active. The way it is, it's like I miss you and. I don't know what else was there. Like, you may not miss me, but I miss you. You were my best friend, my protector, and the one I protected. You were supposed to be there, and then you died. And it's like, I am so sorry, lady, because it makes me sound like a very bad person, but nobody cares. Nobody cares that you miss this person who died. We don't, we're don't. we not invested in your life yet. L, the letter, not L, the character, which obviously are the same people. Yeah, I think I would do something active, something like... Machiavellian, especially since she's so manipulative. And the best characters are manipulative. I am super biased. Great. Thank you. I don't... That was really good feedback. I just need... Now I need to go and I need to think about it. Okay. I would like to offer you a special golden ticket, if anyone watches Shark Tank, Lori does this, for a follow-up one-on-one so that we can talk about these ideas once you've had time to think about it. Thank you. Okay. Yes, thank you. Because I'm excited about this. 
Wow, I'm thinking Willy Wonka's golden ticket, and that's getting me super excited. I think that's where Laurie got it, got it from, yeah. <laughs> and now I think a great suggestion of Cece's would be to read The Last Mrs. Parrish. We have had Liv Constantine on the show. That's the writing sisters, who the duo who write together. That was a huge book. It was a Reese pick. I think they're making it into a film, but definitely I think it'll be really useful for you to, to read that as well. I really appreciate it. Hannah, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Right. That was Hannah. Now we're moving to our second author, who's Beth. Beth, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Would you like to begin by reading us your query letter? Yeah, for sure. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I'm an avid listener of your podcast and am incredibly grateful for all the advice and feedback you provide to emerging writers. I'm seeking representation for my upmarket novel, complete at 80,000 words. It doesn't have to be forever, has themes similar to those in Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman, and has a tone akin to that of Normal People by Sally Rooney. This is a character-driven, inner-life-focused novel that I believe would appeal to Carly or Cece. Emma is running away from her past, from her alcoholic and drug-abusing father, from her long, matriarchal line of divorcees, from her brothers who chose to follow in their dad's footsteps, from the small New England town that thwarts success and happiness. Now living in Chicago, Emma works for a financial auditing firm, pays her bills on time, and does everything else that she always pictured a fully functional, almost 30-year-old adult would do. If only she could get rid of this nagging depression and anxiety that isolate her from meaningful relationships and prevent her from enjoying her life. When Emma meets Jay at a co-worker's party, she's compelled by his job at a nonprofit and the fact that he thinks the world is still worth saving. When he asks her out, she agrees. With each date they go on, Emma tries to both like Jay and be someone Jay would like. She's more successful with the latter. Emma continues with the relationship as an experiment, compromising her values to see if she can be a normal person and enjoy the traditional life path she's headed down. In doing so, perhaps she'll find happiness with Jay without ever having to face the demons of her past. Or she might end up in a loveless marriage stuck forever in her state of depression. Originally from New England, I now live and work from my home in Chicago. This is my debut novel, and I look forward to writing more. Thank you for your consideration, Beth. Wonderful, Beth. Thank you. Okay, Carly, over to you. All right. Thank you for being here, Beth. We always applaud your confidence and your willingness to commit to the learning of yourself and others by being one of our case studies. So thank you so much for being here. Okay. So I usually start off with just the technical stuff in terms of logistics. So, you know, you check all the boxes here, right? We got our market novel or 80,000 words. I really like the title. I think that's great. Right on point for your genre. A couple things that just got a little bit wordy in that paragraph. So I think you can cut when you say similar to those in like, you know, Elevore Elephant, just cut those in. And then for normal people, you have like a tone akin to that of cut that of like, let's just like streamline that paragraph as much as possible. We totally get it. We just don't need those little filler words just to make it sound more lyrical. I would just like, you know, get rid of any of those little tiny words that we don't need. I think the normal people comp is always a little tough because I'm, if it's so spot on and it's like the comp that we must have and like you can't imagine this book without that comp, keep it. But everything these days is comp to normal people and, you know, and it's become like a movie and a brand and it's like, so you know, it's this whole like zeitgeisty thing. So if there is a way to avoid it, I would get rid of it. 
Eleanor Oliphant is also one of those kind of like ubiquitous books, but it is a very specific comp that really works for quirky books. And having read your pages, I, I would keep the Eleanor Oliphant. And if you can switch out normal people, I would switch out normal people. So that that's kind of like my, my first paragraph notes. You do kind of focus on this character-driven, inner-life-focused novel. I like the way that you worded that because you kind of prepare us for the fact that it is going to be very inner-life and you're very self-aware of that fact. I actually had a post on Instagram very recently about like quiet novels and like how I define quiet novels. And I think you like found a beautiful way to kind of explain that this could be perceived as a quiet novel. So I, w- I would keep all of that. I, th- I think that I think that does work. So the next thing, I, I really like the next paragraph. I think it's, I like the beat of it. I like that it has rhythm. I really feel like we understand and empathize her through that, even though, you know, it's not super hooky. It really just, again, helps us empathize with with where, where we're going to go here. The next paragraph is where I would like to have some more stakes. So, because the thing is here, you have, if only she could get rid of the nagging depression and anxiety that isolate her from meaningful relationships and prevent her from enjoying her life. So while it is stakes, like enjoying your life is a stake, it's extremely quiet stake, right? And so I would like you to think of like, in order to get to X you know, something has to happen. And what is X, right? So you have enjoying her life, but that's very vague. So we need a little bit more, even if it's going to be a quiet internal novel, very thoughtful, you know, very character driven, totally fine. But we still need to have stakes that, you know, what happens if X doesn't happen. And if X is enjoying her life, you know, we still have to solve for X, you know. And yeah, my next note was just, you know, what's at stake if she does not become herself? Because the stake here is like, what happens if a human being doesn't, you know, become a fully formed human being or or person that they want to be, right? What's at stake if she doesn't, you know, become that version of herself? Now, the last paragraph, the last body paragraph, I'm going to be honest, this is a bit of a bummer. (laughs) The last line is, or she might end up in a loveless marriage, stuck forever in her state of depression. It has a bummer ending. (laughs) So I would think about the feelings, right? And so Eleanor Oliphant has this very like satisfying ending. Obviously, there's some incredibly dark twists, but we feel very satisfied. It's also very quirky, right? And so having read your pages, I know the quirk comes, but that ending does not encompass what I think you want it to or what the book hopefully ultimately represents. So I would really rethink that last paragraph just to make sure that we're more clear about like finding happiness, right? You have a lot of repetition of depression, finding happiness, right? Like let's only mention those types of words once and then let's try to wrap it up with some sort of like pithy ending. You might have already done this, but just going to the back cover copy of Eleanor Oliphant and using that as like a beat marker is is always a really good idea. You know, the words in the cover copy is like smart, warm, uplifting. Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine as the story of an out-of-the-ordinary heroine whose deadpan weirdness and unconscious wit make for an irresistible journey as she realizes the only way to survive is to open your heart. And the, But the rest of the copy is very focused on plot, right? It's like exactly what punctuates her day, you know, exactly, you know, the type of man that she meets, right? And I think just using that as a bit of a model could probably help alleviate some of those pressures you're putting on the words like, you know, depression and happiness and things like that, just like getting really specific to help us really understand that characterization. Because I think that's potentially what's missing from this just really jumping out at us as like a heart-driven novel and a quirky novel, which is, I think, you know, what it's going to be. So yeah, so those are my main notes. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add to that? Just very quickly, piggybacking on what Carly said about comps, you might want to look at the very nice box. Super quirky. The writing style is quite similar to yours, so I think it would be a fair comp. And just like your story, there is a, is it 
a love story or not situation there. And a main character processing her past in, in the very nice box, it's grief. But the stakes are raised for two reasons. One, there's a line, if you look at the copy of the book, that says, but Matt isn't who he claims to be. And the romance takes a sharp turn. That fixes everything that Carly is saying about this query letter, which I agree. Which is like, okay, I love that it's interior. I love that it's, you know, quiet, but we kind of need something. And then the second thing is that thematically, the very nice box is criticizing, uh, or at least critiquing, I guess, like the well-being jargon, like the corporate culture. And you're book is doing that from a different angle so you don't have to worry about themes in the query letter ever but when you I would just look at that book I guess is what I'm saying because I think it'll help you position this wonderful Cece thank you okay Beth it's now your turn to reply either with answers or with questions of your own okay yeah I was definitely wondering about the normal people comp so that's yeah that's very helpful that was one of my original questions I certainly am trying to, I am struggling a bit to not have it, it is a very quiet novel, but there are stakes and I do think that there's plot, So, but I'm struggling with conveying that. So I think that that helps and I'll definitely look into the very nice box, certainly. Yeah, so, and I think that helps too to hear that it's a little bit too much of a bummer. I will work on <laughs> fixing that. But one question I had about the query in general was, so first of all, I don't know if you got this from the first, you probably didn't from the first few pages, but this book does span many years, but it's just the type of novel similar to Normal People where it's just a few snippets from each year. Is it important to mention that in the query letter? So I would, because that elevates it a little bit in terms of style and structure. I recently sold a novel that's called Five Winters that takes place over the course of five Christmases. And one of the selling points for me and as well, you know, for the editor was the fact that we like we jump years and, and we're able to kind of, you know, use that pacing. One of the books that I love and was one of my, again, another, like if anything's ever comp to this, it's like an auto request for me is One Day. I love One Day. So anytime, yeah, we're like, we're, we are going over multiple years. Another one is 28 Summers by Ellen Hildebrand, who was also on the podcast and is wonderful. But anyway, those aren't comps. But I'm just saying like, anytime we can talk about how your book is elevated through structure, I think is a selling point personally. So if there's like a little way that you can work that in, it could be the very last line before your author bio, it could be like, told over the course of, you know, five years, we blah, 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 or whatever. Okay. And then this is kind of related to, and I guess, I don't know if this fits in with questions about the query letter, but I did have it starting in 2014, only because that makes it so that it ends directly like the beginning of 2020, because I didn't want to talk about the pandemic. But at the same time, 2014 seems kind of old. So this novel was written with modern times in mind. But then I had the issue of, do I just pretend that the pandemic never happened? Like, can I do that and have it ban the year 2020, 2021, and 2022? Or is it better, do you think, to have it start in the past so that it's not, we're not pretending the pandemic didn't happen. It just doesn't coincide. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think one that we're still exploring day to day in the publishing industry. So I don't think there's a wrong way to do it here because this is still a manuscript. You know, we're not going into production right this minute. So I think... 
by the time potentially your book would come out, this, you know, the 2014 start date could be a decade old, right? So we're talking about like a while. So I think there's two ways to go about it. Obviously, keep it as it is and just let the future agent or future editor know like you're obviously open to moving it up or you move it up and then you don't say anything about the pandemic. And then you're just like, okay, if we want to cross that bridge later. So I think your instincts are right. But just know, like, I don't have an answer yet, because, you know, we're still living that reality of how to reflect that in our daily work lives. Okay. And then I guess I think the last question that I had specifically about the query letter is just, did you think it was too long? I I couldn't tell. I think word count, it didn't, it technically wasn't too long, but I always felt when I read it that it felt long. I don't know if you got the same feeling. So it was three body paragraphs. To me, that's too long. And that's why, as I said, I think focusing on, because you mentioned the depression twice, right? You mentioned loveless marriages twice. Like any, I think you need to highlight whenever you found yourself repeating your own self in those three paragraphs and then figure out how you're going to just only say whatever that situation is once. And then focusing on once you figure out what's at stake and how you're going to frame what's at stake, I think again, the query will help realize itself a little bit. So I think I'm hoping my tips help you to eliminate some words. But yes, I would say let's try and trim it down. Okay, thank you. I think that's it for questions that I had about the query letter. Wonderful, Beth. Will you give our listeners a bit of an indication of what's in those opening pages before Carly critiques them? Yes. So Emma's at a work happy hour that she doesn't want to be at. She struggles to contribute to the conversation because she doesn't connect with her coworkers and she's socially anxious. She considers faking a phone call where she learns of an emergency so she has a reason to leave. While looking at her phone, she gets a weird slash gross text from her dad. She's upset with him for this, but she shakes it off because she's used to it. Then a coworker she vaguely recognizes walks up to her and offers to refill her drink. She follows him to the bar and they get acquainted. After a few awkward minutes, he suggests they leave the bar and Emma is intrigued, so she follows him. Great. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what was your take on them? Yeah, so I have a bit of a hard time critiquing this one because I feel like my reader heart and my agent heart are a little bit at odds here because as an agent, I'm always like focusing on like, how can I sell this book? And you know, where's the hook? Where's the inciting incident? But as a reader, I felt... I really, really, really liked this. But as an agent, I still was like, yeah, is it too quiet? You know? But anyway, all that to say, I really like the tone. And I think this is where, as I said, the quirkiness really comes through for me. And I don't think in the query letter you talk about her quirkiness enough. I think you're relying on the Eleanor Oliphant comp to do a lot more work, which isn't a bad thing. But I think I would maybe say, you know, the, the quirkiness or social anxiety or like name her quirkiness in the query letter to just reinforce that there's a reason you're using the Eleanor Oliphant cop, obviously. There's only like one line that I found a bit clunky. You know, there was a line that I'd probably work that says she only invited Emma in to point out that she isn't engaging in the conversation in their company. That one was like a little clunky for me, but there's so much I liked. You know, there was this section, she offers a story from this week. When she speaks, all eyes turn to her, which she reminds herself is normal and not at all because they think she's weird and can't stop staring at her. They lean in towards her, even though she feels like she's shouting. She tells them, how she had to send an email to the treasurer three times before they got on a call and Emma realized the treasurer had been looking in her deleted folder rather than their inbox and they all laugh and perform exaggerated face palms. You know, it's just, I love that. 
I don't know. I just really loved that moment of, you know, her feeling outside of her body and being able to reflect on that moment. I think we've all been in that situation, whether we have social anxiety or not, just like, you know, you're at a bar and it's like, what are you supposed to do? What does normal feel like? You know, but I think you really lean into how that is especially unique for her in terms of that actual uniqueness. So I thought there was a lot of really strong things here, you know, after that awkward or weird or, you know, text from her dad, you know, she catches herself falling into this trap she sometimes finds herself in, the one where she feels grief for the loss of her very alive father. You know, that that's really beautiful. I really liked that. So, so yeah, I think based on all of this, I would just really lean into, as I said, her voice, you know, the quirkiness, that social anxiety. And I think that your writing is very strong and you can back it up. You know, not everybody can do quirky, right? It's a real skill. So I think you should really pat yourself on the back because I think you did a really, really great job here. Wonderful, Carlise. Right, we're getting back to you, Beth. Okay, thank you. Yeah, my biggest fear is just that it is too quiet. And I I don't know how to fix that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do about that. I know, I know. And I that's what I was kind of saying when I'm like, my agent heart and my reader heart were battling (laughs) because I think for novels to stand out these days, like there has to be the thing, right? Like, why does somebody pick this book out of all the other books, you know, whether it's an agent or an editor or a bookseller or a reader, there just has to be the hook, right? And so that's why I think I think the improvements to your query, again, will help you get an agent and then getting an agent will help you refine it. Like, I think that this will this is the type of book that will be like blessed by every person along the way that helps you bring it into its full being. And once you find the people, you know, the agent, the editor that can help you fully bring this book into its fullest being, I really think it's a beautiful book. And sometimes the quiet books, the quirky books, the books that we don't know how to categorize are the very special books. You know, I sold a book like that, Glendy Vanderas novel, Where the Forest Meets the Stars. It was one of those books where it's like, nobody knows how to categorize it. I barely know how to categorize it, you know, when I was pitching it, but I just wanted to like shake the book in front of everybody and be like, this is the book you have to read. Like sometimes we can't explain those magical thing. But we just know that we have to do that physical shaking of the book in somebody's face. And so part of that is figuring out what is special about your book, right? And you are the person that knows your book better than anybody else. So that's why we rely on you through the query letter, through the structure, you know, to really focus on that. So it's it's about being so specific in those words about what makes your book unique. Again, that, that really helps it. So I think, all as I said with the query letter, I think your instincts are very good. I think you have very good instincts. I think you're a very good writer. So it's really just figuring out why we're going to convince somebody to read this book (laughs) and not any other book today. Like this is the book. And so it does lean on quiet. But if you can just focus on telling us, you know, what's at stake and why does it matter? You know, all of that will will take you a really long way. Okay. And do you think that the kind of backstory or the hinting at the backstory is something that could help? Could that be the hook, do you think? Or is that not enough of the hook? So in the query letter, you mean about the running away from her past? Yeah. And then that kind of hint of it with the text from her dad in the first few pages. Yeah, I really liked the text from the dad. I really liked that. And even in the query letter, I didn't I didn't mind that kind of like framing of, you know, where she's from, you know, and why she wants to do things differently, you know, from her long matriarchal line of divorcees. To me, you said something without saying it. You said from her long line of matriarchal line of divorcees. It's like nobody really wants to be in the matriarchal line of divorcees. You didn't have to say, oh, Emma doesn't want to be one of, you know, like I think you're you're I think you need to have faith in your writing because I think you're doing all the things that you want to do. And and I really liked that text. Even if it was icky, when I read it, I was like, oh, baby girl, who's that? And then I was like, the dad. And then I remembered the query letter. So it was icky, but not in a not in a way that didn't make me curious, right? As Cece always says, curiosity is so important, right? And it really did make me curious. So 
And then I, one of my favorite lines was the one where she feels grief for the loss of her very alive father. And I think a lot of people who are estranged from parents can, can really relate to that. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I don't think I have any other questions. That's perfect, Beth. All right, so that's it for today's Books with Hooks. Thanks so much for joining us, Beth. And now we go to today's guest. This is just a reminder about the courses we've got coming up. On the 13th of April, I will be hosting a Leaning into Specificity webinar between 7 and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And then on the 28th of April, Cece will be hosting a Writing Tension webinar at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. To sign up for those, go to my website, biancamaray.com, and look under the Courses tab. And then you've all been asking me for another writing group matchup or a beta reader matchup. And so I've decided to do the great beta reader matchup. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, look under the beta reader tab to get more information about how to sign up for that. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. 
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. After two decades of working as an actor, today's guest returned to her first love, which is writing. A graduate with distinction of the UCLA Extension Writers Program, she is the author of Mothers and Other Strangers and balances the solitary hours of fiction writing with work as a creative director and brand storyteller. Originally from Johannesburg, she's lived in New York and Los Angeles and now lives in Toronto with her family. It's my pleasure to welcome Gina Gina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And for our listeners, Gina and I were introduced a few years back again by a wonderful independent bookseller. This is why we love our independent booksellers because they don't just promote our work, they introduce us to each other. And of course, Gina and I have the South African background in common and we had lovely drinks in Toronto at a time when such things were still possible, Gina. (laughs) Oh, yes. The good old days. Doesn't it make you nostalgic, man? It does. Yeah. It yeah. does. So for our listeners, the book we're discussing today is The Wise Woman. Such a gorgeous, gorgeous cover. Now, you know, Gina, you know, in publishing, we don't often get much say in our covers. Was that the case this time and you were just really lucky or were you able to consult on this one? I was really lucky that I was able to consult on this one. I really was. You know, I was also able to consult on the cover of my first book which was, again, really fortunate. But I had a really specific idea in mind. I either wanted it to convey something about the book or I wanted it to convey a feeling about the book. You know, the first book for Mothers and Other Strangers, it's a protea, you know, it's a South African flower. It's really specific. It comes up in the book. With this, there were many storylines and there were many different images that could be used and I didn't want it to become overcrowded. And so then I had this idea of that feeling of things being uplifting and looking up, you know, which is sort of what it feels like to me of these blue skies and then all these blooms coming in, you know, things are looking up, even if they don't always start in that place. And my publisher, HarperCollins, was really fantastic. Harper Books is publishing this book. And we had a lot of different designs to look at, and then a lot of different color palettes, which made me very, very happy. Because I know we're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but we do. (laughs) We really do. Absolutely. You know, I am one of those people that will walk into a bookstore and pick up a book and buy it purely because I absolutely love the cover. Sometimes it works really well. And sometimes you're like, what the hell, man? What's in side is not living up to what's on the outside but you know the author's laughing all the way to the bank because they've already made their money and they don't care so uh, I 100% agree with you there so for our listeners will you give them a bit of a breakdown of how the title the wise woman relates to the storyline relates to the characters because you mentioned earlier that there are quite a few storylines and that for me is always the most challenging kind of book to write when you just have one main character and one perspective it's easy but you've had 
had to do a huge juggling act here. Could you take us through that? Sure. So The Wise Women is the story of the mother, Wendy Wise, and her daughters, Barb Wise and Clementine Wise. And, you know, they're at the center of the story. So it's about two adult daughters and their meddling advice columnist mother. But it's also about the wisdom of women and how we can rely on one another and how we look to one another for support and how we're able to rally together and how that wisdom sometimes comes in unexpected ways from other characters. You know, I feel like I have a lot of different wise women in my life. And in the book, there are a lot of different characters that play a really important part, you know, and that offer their own types of wisdom. And so that's something that I wanted to take a look at. So I was sort of playing it on both levels, the actual family name and then the wisdom of women. And when you decided to tackle this story, you know, for me, what's always fascinating is the genesis of a story. Was mm -hmm. it like the premise that came to you, advice columnist, mother, two grown daughters, or was it one of these characters came to you first and then the rest kind of came to you afterwards? How did this idea develop in your mind? For me, it started with Clementine. You know, at the beginning of the book, Clementine has just discovered that the house that she is living in that she thought she owned She's actually been renting because little did she know that her husband, Steve, has taken all of their money and he's funneled it into his flailing carbonated vegetable water startup. So it's a betrayal. You know, it's this, it's this huge betrayal that happens. And I wanted to, to explore that. I think we all think of betrayal you know, for a traditional way within a marriage of it's got to be infidelity, you know, but there are other ways that we can betray one another. And I think there's also other ways that we can feel betrayed in life. You know, things didn't turn out the way that we were expecting. You know, we went on a certain path and it just didn't materialize the way that we hoped or planned. So it started with that. I started to think about, you know, what would that be like to explore it in a different way? And also there's just so many themes in the book that I really am obsessed with, you know, this idea of identity and belonging and real estate, you know, I'm obsessed with real estate, my whole family's in real estate, you know, and what it's like to make it in the big city and how you juggle all these different responsibilities, you know, I'm also a working mother. And so I put all of that into Clementine, all of those frustrations and, and struggles that she's going through and that she's trying to manage and stay ahead of and starting it right when the rug is pulled out from underneath her. And so was it originally going to be just Clementine? And then as you began writing her sister and her mother, these voices were crowding in, making you realize that Clementine's perspective would not be enough? Or was it all the time that you were kind of wanting this 360 view of the dynamics between these three women? It's a great question. I think it started out as Clementine being supported by Barb and Wendy. Because you start with a character like that, and then you think, well, who's in her life, you know, and gave her a sister, somebody that she can lean on and rely on, and who's an older sister, who's actually always been sort of a surrogate mother figure to her and looked out for her. And then when, you know, I, I kept having this idea of a meddling mother, like somebody who gave really unhelpful advice, but gave it quite passionately, you know, it's very, very committed to getting involved in her daughter's life, whether she wanted it or not. But in order for those two women to not just be two dimensional caricatures, you know, I had to know more about them. So they started to very organically take a larger focus in the novel and then become fleshed out. And that's really important to me. I think that, you know, whether it's with a light touch or a very dramatic, you know, touch, I don't think that these characters should ever just be two dimensional. You know, people are a result of their circumstances, they're a result of their experiences. You know, there's so many things that go into making us who we are. And I really want my readers to, even if they don't like the characters, to understand them and to be able to know why they're doing the things that they're doing. That's really important. Yeah. And, you know, we got that. And what I got such a sense of with this book that really stood out to me is, you know, there's the saying that even if you are biological siblings, no 
two siblings were raised by the same parent because, you know, parents parent their children differently and that child's personality and their outlook on life will determine the kind of parenting they get and how they view their parents. And of course, if you're a feisty kind of kid who's constantly challenging everything your parents say, your parents are going to view you as being difficult, which means you will be handled differently to a child who's sort of more accepting of things and more complacent and all the rest of it. And for me, it was really fascinating how the sibling had such a different view of their mother, even though, you know, they grew up together and were mothered by her at the same time. And was that something you were planning to set out to explore? Or is it something that kind of surprised you in the writing of it? It's definitely something I set out to explore. It's something that's been fascinating to me for a very long time. I have a very different relationship with my mother than my siblings do. I'm the youngest of three. My sister's four years older than me. My brother is six years older than me. But my brother and my sister are very close. In many ways, I felt like an only child when I was younger, just because they hung out and they did everything together. I mean, we're all great friends now. But their experience with my mom, who was a very young mom at the time, is really different than mine. By the time I came around, you know, she had more experience. She was more confident. She also probably was much more tired, you know. So there were just other things that I got to get away with. I had an entirely different path than my brother and my sister did. And I think that it's true. I, it, exactly, you said it beautifully, like no child has the same relationship. No child has the same story of what their upbringing is. And I've always been fascinated by that. And that's something that I love to dive into, you know, these stories that we have with our parents and where we're, where we're from and how we view our childhood. You know, I can look at my sisters and see something totally different than how she felt and what she experienced. And I think that that's really something to be mindful of. And I wanted to bring that out in the writing. Yeah. And that's something I think that's always made me so nervous about memoir. I've always said there's only two genres I'll never write, memoir and probably YA, <laughs> because of the fact that you can have two siblings who are experiencing the same family moment and yet each of their recollection of it, their interpretation of it is so, so wildly different. And I mean, that is, you know, what memoir is. An e it's an exploration of your perception of what, what happened in your life, which is, you know, you don't have to be objective in your memoir, etc. But for me, that's always been tricky in terms of that. But in fiction, it's an absolute minefield to explore. If there's any siblings out there, I would love a memoir where you write the memoir together, each of the siblings, and you discuss your memories of the exact same things and see how that goes. Because I don't think we've seen that yet. So that, that might be a big hook for some of you out there with siblings who write. But now, Gina, something that you've done and have done so well is something that I generally advise emerging writers against. Is, oh, okay. <laughs> no, but here's the thing. So, so on the show, we always like, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. And it becomes really prescriptive. And it's a pain in the ass, I think, for a lot of our listeners. But the reason we do it is because the things we say people should avoid, it's because it's so easy to mess it up. And you really need to know what you're doing so that you don't mess it up. And here's the thing. You did these things that we tell people not to do because you have mastered your craft and because you did them exceptionally well. So for our listeners who we're always saying, don't give too much context in the opening pages. We don't need to know the character's context. We don't need to know their backstory, etc. This is something Gina's completely turned on the head. And for each of these characters, because we start with Clementine, then we see Bob, then we see the mom. And 
And in each of their first chapters, we are getting like an understanding of what it took to get them here, what they've experienced to kind of make them who they are, how this affects their outlook. Is this just your writing style, Gina, and you're just one of those writers that intuitively knows what to include and what leave out so that the reader isn't bogged down? Or was this something that was a challenge for you to do and you had to really look at that in the editing? I would love to say that it's intuitive, (laughs) you know, but I, I don't think that's the case. In my first book, Mothers and Other Strangers, I really struggled. You know, there's backstory, front story, backstory, front story, and how do I get all of that out? And that was a a much, I won't say darker, but it was, it was a darker twist to your exploration of a complicated mother-daughter relationship. And I really struggled with how to shed light on both of their experiences that brought them to where they were and the issues that they were having. I ended up with that book deciding to use flashback to be able to tell those stories. But it, you know, it was really difficult. There were so many revisions in that. There's so many times that I had to scrap entire scenes or chapters or, you know, which is not a big deal, but like pages and pages, and then have to figure out what to keep, what not to, you know, what not to keep. So this time around, I wanted to be able to still bring all of that background because I do love that background for characters and what makes them, as I've said, you know, who they are. But I wanted to do it in a way that felt like it was front loaded in the story because I wanted to keep the story in the present. So I tried to still do it, but just write it all tighter, you know, to, to give us, to really plunge us into the person with giving us just enough information as to where we're finding them, like, you know, events sort of leading up to them. And I wonder if it isn't a little bit to do with my previous work as an actor, you know, where we build out these really big backstories for characters in order to understand them and to have all their motivations. Because you, you go into an audition and you have sides, you know, sides are parts of the script that you're reading at the audition. And it just plunges you right into the character as we meet them. And then you have to often figure out the rest, especially if you're a character actor. And I was, you know, it's not a leading role. You're not having all those conversations with the director. So you have to do all of that homework and all of that research to explain why this person is standing up in a courtroom and, you know, freaking out. So I did all that kind of work and you put that all inside and then you just have that scene and have those lines and have that experience and you hope that it comes across. And I think for my writing, I really been trying to bring that same kind of, of training and, and understanding, but still plunging us into the characters right at a moment where it's critical. Yeah, you do it so incredibly well. It's this way of giving us just enough brush strokes so that we can connect with the character without, like you say, going into flashbacks, taking us back into the past. Because remember for our listeners, flashbacks drag you back. So it was never a case of this is a flashback. It's like contextualization. It's, you know, this is why this character kind of feels the way they do now, or this is why they are in the situation that they're in now. And then we can move forward with them based on on that understanding. And also so, so smart when you are dealing with like three main characters, because again, for our listeners, you know, 80,000 word novel, one character, you spend the whole 80,000 words with them. When you've got that and you've got three characters, you're spending so much less time in each character's perspective that you've got to work that much harder to make sure that the readers love that character, are invested in that character and are happy to keep coming back to that character. Can you speak a bit about the challenges there that you faced in terms of, you know, making sure that in less pages, bringing each of those characters to life for the reader? 
that is a real challenge. I think if anything, at times I was worried that I wasn't going to be bringing enough. I really like the reader to be involved in the formation of the story. You know, I want to give them, you use the perfect word, I want to give them enough brushstrokes, you know, to be able to connect the dots, to be able to contextualize, to be able to paint a clear picture for themselves. But I don't want to color in every aspect of that picture. You know, it's important to me that characters are relatable to the readers and that readers can see themselves in those characters. If I fill in absolutely every single detail, they're not going to be able to do that. You know, I have found that myself sometimes that I feel like, oh, I'm this woman 100%. And then somebody will say, you know, a detail that's so outside of myself that I just, I just, I can't believe it. Suddenly I'm out, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm completely out. And I think, oh, okay, well, this maybe isn't a book for me. You know, and it's amazing how quickly that can happen. And so I, I, I never want to do that. I have the other problem is I have to make sure that I'm giving enough. You know, sometimes, you know, my editor will say, well, what, you know, that's, that came across so harsh that Wendy said that, or, or, you know, that's, it's really offensive or, and, you know, just as an example. And I'd be like, no, no, that makes perfect sense from where Wendy came from. Oh, I guess I haven't, I haven't mentioned the things that Wendy's mother said to her. So then I won't do a whole scene on that, but, you know, maybe just a line or two, maybe just something that Wendy references in a conversation. Just enough. Readers are really smart. I never want to underestimate their intelligence. You know, I want to give them enough that they can be involved in the story and engaged and then move along with it. What Jean has just said is really helpful because we will get critique all the time from our agents, from our editors. And on the show, I'm constantly telling people, get beta readers, get writing groups, and you'll often get critique from people and they'll be like, oh, that came out of nowhere. That's harsh or whatever. And so our natural instinct is to take it out. But that isn't always the best instinct because that's not like what Gina did. She didn't go, oh, well, the editor said it's harsh. Let me take it out. She went, how do I create enough context so that it doesn't feel super harsh? Let me add things in other places maybe to contextualize that as opposed to taking this one thing out. And, and that's really incredible advice because we do tend to just immediately go to taking something out. How much longer was the novel to begin with from when you finished it to where it is now? Are you, do you tend to be an overwriter, Gina, or do you tend to be an underwriter? How much happens in the revising and the editing phase? Because this book is so tight. And if this is how you write, I'm going to hate you for all eternity. Oh, no. And I was so hoping our friendship would only grow. <laughs> it can only grow if you're not a perfect the first time writer, Gina. I'm a nice person, but I'm not that nice. <laughs> you have your limits, clearly. Well, I'm an underwriter and I write really tight. So forgive me and reconsider your stance. But but I'm not, but I'm a slow writer, if that makes you feel better. I mean, I am a slow writer. So I think that's part of why I, I underwrite. I'm not like these people who sit down, these people, see, I've put them in a category myself. I'm not like these people who sit down and boom, 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 you know, four pages, get a thousand words and oh, and they're done by lunch. I mean, it's not like that for me. I'm like, oh, I had two pages today. That's really great. If I push myself to three, when I'm on a real, real push, it's four and I have to block out the whole day for it, you know? And I think part of that is, is because I write so tightly. I don't sort of, either I don't give myself license or I just don't have the ability to just trust to put it all on the page and then I'll edit it later. So we had to actually add pages to this book. I had to open it up in sections to get another 
40, 50 pages in. Yeah, it's, it's, that's my problem with it is it's so tight. As someone who majorly overwrites, I'm always envious of, of that quality. And I have a good friend, Caroline Gill, who writes the same way. And we'll, you know, back in the day when we used to be able to write together, we'd sit across from each other and I would be banging it out. Like it's like that gif of Kermit the Frog pounding on the, on the typewriter. And she would gaze into space for like three hours and then write five words and then gaze into space again and then write another. But once those words are on the page, they are on the page because they are pretty damn perfect. Whereas I get my four pages, then I take out three, then I add another two, then I take out another one and it's revising, revising. So to me, it seems like a much smarter way to work. But I'm afraid, you know, our process is our process. And we're kind of stuck with the way of, of doing things that we do. So your advice to emerging writers, because your first novel came out with a smaller publisher. This one is now with a bigger publisher. You know, what was the evolution of that? Because that's the way you actually want to do it. And many writers seem to go the opposite way. They come out, you know, with a big five and then have disappointing sales and then they don't publish with them again. Could you tell us a bit about that process and also, you know, your advice to emerging writers? Well, I wish that I had a say in that process. You know, the reality was, is that I really struggled to find a home for my first book. And I went with Prospect Park Books, which has now been absorbed into Turner Publishing. Just just over a year ago, it, it closed after many wonderful years, but you know, they do 12 books a year. And that's not a lot, but they said yes. And they loved the book and they got behind it. And that was fantastic. And it was, it did allow me as somebody who likes to be very involved in the process to be able to do that, you know, to really be a part of those publicity meetings and the marketing meetings and to have a say in the cover and to help plan my own events because, you know, a small house doesn't have the resources and it doesn't have the budget to do all those things. So I did that on my own. And, and so I learned a lot about how that works. This time around, my book is with a, a different agent and, and she took it out and it had interest. And I was really fortunate that it had interest. And I ended up with Harper and I think they're fantastic and I'm thrilled to be there, but it's, in many ways, it's a very different process in terms of there's all the resources and there's lots of personnel and there's a lot of support, but it's also a much bigger house. It's, you know, there's, I'm not the only author they're looking at. You know, when you're one of 12 versus when you're one of, I don't even know, what do we say? Dozens and dozens and dozens, right? It, it's a much different experience. And so I've had to practice in patience. Like I can't just be like, I sent that email five minutes ago. I'm so confused. Why has nobody gotten back to me? You know, which is really challenging when, when it feels like, you know, it's, it's our whole world as writers, right? It's one book on their slate, even though they're passionate about it. It's, it's one book. They've got lots of responsibilities. So in terms of the evolution of it, I think it's also just the kind of book that it is. You know, I think it's a book that is, it still deals with really serious themes. I think, you know, it is still talking about aging and it's talking about parenting and marriage and also, you know, the high cost of having a, a professional life and a personal life and of making it in the big city and, you know, and of, and of real estate and all those struggles that many of us are facing every day, but it deals with it in a lighter way. And hopefully, you know, in a wittier and more heartfelt way, you know, because I wanted the book to be really uplifting and hopefully it is. And so I think just that kind of book had a wider audience, maybe. And so that lent itself to this kind of house. And then your advice to emerging writers. And before you give them any advice, I want to say for our listeners, we're always saying what a good opening chapter should be. We're saying have a character in imbalance, have inner and outer conflict, show them in turmoil. 
answer the question, why now? Why today? Why doesn't the story start next week? Why didn't it start the week before? Gina has nailed all of that. So certainly this opening chapter is is a masterclass in what an opening chapter should be. So just to finish off, Gina, your advice for emerging writers. That was very nice. Thank you. Uh, my my advice for emerging writers is don't give up. I mean, I really, I really believe that. I know that you've talked about this a lot on the show too. And I think it's really important not to not to give up. I mean, there's going to just accept that this part of the process. I think being an actor really helped me with rejection. You know, it's just go out on, on audition the next day. You didn't get it. Keep going. You know, sometimes there were years that there's no work. Well, I think, you know, we write a book and we think, well, I have a book and everyone's going to take it out in the world. Now it's going to find an agent. It's going to find a publisher. It's going to find its readers. I'm on my way. And it doesn't always work out that way. I've had lots of detours on my road to this book. You know, I've had you know successes and I've had huge disappointments and heartbreak. I think if you're able to take a step back, I would say to emerging writers and just look at it as, oh, this is just part of the business. This is just the way that it works, you know, in terms of the publishing aspect of it. And in terms of the writing aspect of it, there's only one thing you can ever control. And that is the writing itself. You know, when you're feeling doubtful or disappointed or just frustrated, just get back to the page. You know, there's so much potential on the page. There's, it's all just words. There's so many ways that we can rearrange them. There's so many stories that can be told. Just focus on the craft of the writing. And, you know, I think I really believe that if that is solid and you feel good about what you're working on, eventually the other things will line up. Excellent advice from Gina. And for our listeners, we've got this listed on our bookshop.org affiliate page. So you can click through there to, to purchase it. You'll be supporting an independent bookstore, the author and the podcast at the same time. Gina, we wish you much luck with this title and hope to have you back for the next one. Terrific. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. 
There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.